pride blinds people to the plain facts about the scriptures, the plain facts about their sin, and the plain facts about the Savior. What we value most in life, we always worship. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to John chapter 7, John chapter 7. We're studying the Gospel of John, as you know, and uh, John wrote the Gospel to demonstrate the deity of Christ, number one, and then number two, to persuade those who read his Gospel to place their faith in Jesus Christ so they could experience eternal life. Today we're in John 7, we're going to begin at verse 25, if you're looking to find your place in your Bible. Jesus has traveled down from northern Galilee, northern Israel, to Jerusalem in Judea, to celebrate the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of the Passover. He has been teaching in the temple, and the Jewish religious leaders, who John called the Jews, are just astonished at the level of his teaching, the power and clarity and authority of his teaching. And Jesus tells them his teaching is true because he came from God, he teaches God's truth, he pursues God's glory, and he does God's supernatural signs. All of this came about, Jesus, six months earlier, had healed the man who was paralyzed for 38 years, and he healed him, and the Jewish religious leaders have been attempting to kill him ever since. Uh, One, because he broke the Sabbath by healing someone on the Sabbath, and two, he claimed to be God, and called God his Father. So in this section of Scripture, verse 25 in the chapter, there's three different groups of religious Jews that John refers to. One... John calls the people of Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem. These were locals who lived in Jerusalem. Verse 25. Second group, John calls the crowd. Verse 31. And these were out-of-town Jews who were in Jerusalem for the feast. They were pilgrims. They'd come to town for the feast. So they didn't know the local gossip, but they were out-of-town. So the crowd is out-of-town. The people of Jerusalem were locals. And the third group is the Jewish religious leaders, whom John simply calls the Jews. He's talking about the Jewish religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Speaking of Jesus. Look, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we do not, however, we know where this man is from. But wherever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Verse 28. Then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than this man, will he? 
Okay, here's our first principle. Knowing Jesus is eternal life. So make it your priority to know him more every day. Knowing Jesus is eternal life, so make it your priority to know him more every day. So the people of Jerusalem, they're the folks that live in Jerusalem, they're in a state of pretty severe confusion and uncertainty about who Jesus is. First of all, they're amazed that he has the courage to speak publicly, despite death threats, because it's pretty clear that they understand uh, that the religious leaders have a contract out to kill Jesus. They, I mean, they're plotting to kill him, they have for six months, and everybody in town knows that he's on their hit list. So they're amazed that he has the courage to show up. The people of Jerusalem are thinking, you know, if Jesus is a fraud, surely our religious leaders would arrest him. Since they haven't arrested him, the people of Jerusalem are going, well, did they change their mind? Do they really think he is the Messiah at this point? I mean, otherwise, why wouldn't they have arrested him? And by the way, if they do believe he's the Messiah, why aren't they worshiping him? Why don't they acknowledge it? So the people of Jerusalem are looking at what Jesus is doing, and they're looking at their religious leader's reaction, and they are confused, right? However, they themselves do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. There was a Jewish tradition that the origins of the Messiah would be completely unknown. You know, they believed that no one would know where the Messiah is from, and he's going to just suddenly show up out of nowhere. That's a local tradition. That is not biblical. And this idea, this tradition, was based on a misreading of Malachi 3. Malachi 3, 1, talks about the Lord suddenly coming into his temple, right? So they go, well, the Messiah is going to show up out of nowhere, and we won't know where he's from or who he is, and he's just going to show up. Well, he actually did suddenly come into his temple. Two years earlier, at the very beginning of his ministry, about two and a half years earlier, he suddenly showed up at the temple and did what? Cleaned it out. Threw all the money changers out, turned over their tables, drove the cattle out, got a whip. Yeah, he suddenly showed up. Well, that's what Malachi was talking about. However, this crowd thinks that the Messiah will be unknown and since they all knew who Jesus was, I mean, he'd been around for two and a half years, and they knew he was from Nazareth, they figured, he ain't the guy, because, you know, we know him. So Jesus responds to that. And what you don't read in your text is Christ's commentary to them is really sarcastic, and it's really ironic. He says, in essence, you think you know me. You know me in an earthly sense. I mean, you know my earthly family, and you know my hometown of Nazareth, but you really don't know me. You don't know my divine nature. You don't know my heavenly Father, my unity with my Father. You really don't know me because you don't know him who sent me. You don't know God. Now, that's a pretty serious accusation. Of all the people on the earth who think they know God, at this point, it's the Jews, right? I mean, they were given the law and given the testimony, and given the Ten Commandments, and had the pillar of fire in the wilderness. If anybody who knew who God was, the Jews were convinced that they knew the one true God. And Jesus said, wrong. You don't know the God of the Old Testament because you refuse to believe what God has written about me, the Messiah. And the Old Testament is filled with prophecies about the coming of Messiah, and the Jewish religious leaders rejected all of them. 
Now, Jesus claims to be from God and to have been sent by God. Since he's from God, it means he has the same nature, identical nature, substance as God. Had no beginning, had no end. Jesus eternally exists as God. He was not created. He is the creator of all things. When he was born in human flesh, Jesus did not give up his divine nature. We've talked about this before, that Jesus is fully God and fully man in one individual. When he added sinless humanity, sinless, never sinned, humanity, to his complete deity, he became the one and only, the unique God-man. He was sent by God to speak to humanity about the message of salvation and redemption. And it says that some of the Jewish crowd was so angry with his claims to be from God, his claims to be God, that they tried to arrest him on the spot. As a matter of fact, the normal method of execution at that point was stoning with rocks. And um, you will see multiple cases here where it says the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. So he would have been executed on the spot uh, in the temple. They probably would have drug him out first. But it says his time had not yet come. Since he was sent by God, he was under God's sovereign protection. Since it was not God's sovereign timetable for Christ to go to the cross yet, God prevented anyone from laying hands on him. And I think we need to pay attention to this. You and I are God's children, adopted into his family through the grace of Jesus Christ if we placed our faith in him to forgive our sins. And as such, as God's child, nothing happens to you and I unless it crosses our Heavenly Father's table, his desk, and he marks approved on it. There is nothing that happens to you that doesn't cross your Heavenly Father's desk first. He is never surprised. You will never hear God say, whoops, I didn't see that coming. You will never hear them say, Brad Hannock's got a real problem. I, I, I wonder what I'm going to do about that. God never wonders about anything. He knows everything because he's pre-planned everything. And there's no speck of dust and no blossom of pollen and no drop of rain that is not under direct divine control. So whatever happens in your life, it didn't surprise God. It was planned by God and allowed by him for our eternal good. And we need to remember that because that is by faith, because sometimes you look at your circumstances and go, um, God, you and I need to have a little conversation because I would not have chosen this. And he said, that's right, you're not God. Because I know what's best for your eternal good. And I will walk through this hard time that I've arranged for you to go through at this point in time. So Jesus knows us intimately. One of the reasons we struggle with our circumstances and we struggle with what he is doing in our life is that we do not know him intimately. Right? How well do you know Jesus? I know he knows you well. He knows everything about us. But how well do you know him? Would you say, oh, we're acquainted? You know, if he showed up, I'd... I'd recognize him, you know. How much effort are you willing to put into knowing him better? You know, if you love someone, you will do what? Well, you'll start by spending time with them. 
pretty tough to say, I love you, but I just can't stand being with you. Yeah, that doesn't, you know, that quite doesn't really wash. So if you love Jesus, you spend time with him. Here's the truth. What we value most in life, we always worship. What you value most in life is what you worship. So if Jesus Christ is not the number one priority in your life, then you have an idol. I don't know what that idol is, but Jesus does. Make him the number one priority in your life and demonstrate that by putting time into that relationship. So the crowd, Scripture says, is divided. Some rejected Jesus, some believed on Jesus, but none of them really knew him. And none of them put the time and effort into knowing him better. I mean, they've seen his miracles, and the ones that believed in him said, well, no one else could do these miracles, so they were sign believers, you know. What they didn't believe is that he really was God in human form. They didn't really believe that he was the only begotten Son of God, God himself, who came to save people from their sin. And most of them were willing to make judgments about him without doing the homework to say, who really is he? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Now, there's two major religious political parties in uh, Judea, Galilee, and Israel at this point. You've got the Pharisees on the one hand, there's 6,000 of them, and they're lay people, business people, and you've got the Sadducees, they're kind of the liberals, the left wing, they didn't believe in resurrection, they didn't believe in miracles, and they're the priests. And they're rich, and they're doing business with Rome. And the Pharisees are not doing business with Rome. They believe in the law, and they obey every jot and tittle of the law. So the scribes and Pharisees uh, usually don't get along. The Sadducees and the Pharisees usually don't get along. But they hate Jesus because he's threatening their positions, so they agree to cooperate in putting him to death. There's an old phrase in diplomacy that says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, if you look at the political stage, you can track that pretty well, right? And those keep shifting, right? So the crowd is afraid of the Jewish religious authorities. This is the Sadducees and the Pharisees because they are the ones that control the synagogue. And so they're kind of, it says they're muttering, grumbling under their breath. They're scared that if they acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, they're going to get excommunicated from the synagogue. Well, if you're not a member of the synagogue in good standing, you ain't a going to heaven, according to the Jews, the religious leaders. So you better stay on the good foot and maintain membership in the synagogue in order to get into heaven. So they kind of speak under their breath. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees hear that. And they get a little uptight. If too many people believe in Jesus, if the number of people that believe in Jesus reaches critical mass, then they will, the crowds, will demand that Christ be anointed king. And if Christ is a political king, who loses? The Jewish religious leaders lose their position of authority. They lose their position of power. They lose their wealth that they're getting from the temple services, charging enormous prices to sell sacrificial lambs, etc. So they know they've got to stop this Jesus now because it's going to threaten their political gig. And so they preempt that, and they send Levitical officers to arrest Jesus on the spot. 
And these Levitical officers are really the police force of the tabernacle, of the temple. Somebody's got to keep order in the temple and make sure things are protected and Gentiles don't get into, into the court of the Jews, etc. So they're the police force and they go try and arrest him. <clears throat> I've often wondered, do they understand how absolutely crazy it is to try and arrest God? Let's see, I'm going to put God in handcuffs. How's it going to work? You know, probably not well. As a matter of fact, it never works unless God wants to be arrested. And in fact, God does choose to be arrested in about six months on a Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Voluntarily chose to be arrested before he went to the cross. His plan, his time. Verse 33. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. Verse 34 should terrify you. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Here's the principle. Since your eternal destiny depends on believing in Jesus, trust him before it's too late. Since your eternal destiny depends on believing in Jesus, trust him before it's too late. See, Jesus knows already at the very next Passover, six months from now, he's voluntarily going to lay down his life as the perfect Lamb of God in order to pay the penalty for sins for everyone who chooses to trust in him. And after his death, he's going to what? Rise again and ascend back into heaven. Now the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, don't believe in his deity. And so they clearly don't believe in his resurrection from the dead, nor will they believe that he's returning to heaven. But Jesus is predicting something utterly interesting. It's, he says, you're going to look for me after the resurrection and ascension, and you won't find me. Well, of course they would. They were looking for him because if they could produce the body, they could counteract the disciples' claim that he rose from the dead. People have been trying to find the body of Christ in so many words for centuries. If you can find the body, we can disprove the resurrection. Guess what? You can't find the body because it is in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God the only God-man in ever, and the only God-man, obviously, at the right hand of the Father. So he's predicting, you're going to try and find me, you're not going to be able to find me. I'm not on earth, I'm in heaven, and you cannot enter heaven because you've rejected God's only plan to deal with human sin. See, God only has one plan to deal with sin, and that's Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross in the place of the sinner. That's God's plan to accomplish two things. If Jesus Christ dies in your place, then God's justice is satisfied. And if God's justice is satisfied, then he can show mercy and forgiveness and love and grace to the sinner. But if justice is not done, then God cannot show grace and mercy and still be just. That's why Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, had to die in the place of the sinner, pay our penalty so that God the Father can now show us grace and forgiveness and mercy. And the Pharisees, of course, didn't believe any of that. They said, 
Our good works are sufficient to get into heaven. And Jesus said, your good works are not good to get into heaven at all. It's not even that you Pharisees won't refuse to come to heaven. It's that you cannot come into heaven even if you want to. Now, I want you to write this down. Jesus made two promises. Two promises that have eternally different outcomes. The first promise is right here in this lesson, and it says, this is to the Pharisees who rejected him, where I am, you cannot come. Now, where I am, you cannot come is hell, correct? Where you cannot, cannot come, that's hell. In three chapters, four chapters, five chapters, John 14, verse 3, Jesus says to his disciples who believed in him, what is what's promised? Where I am, there you may be also. Folks, I don't know how to get salvation any clearer than this. Where, you, where I go, you cannot come if you reject me. That's hell. That's separation from God forever. To those who believe on him, where you are, where I am, there you may be also for all eternity. It's real simple. What destination do you want? With Christ forever in heaven, separated from Christ forever in hell. It's a binary choice. There is no third way. And you is going to die. I mean, if, hopefully you're persuaded of that. Right? Those, that prom, those two promises describe the gospel in two verses. So what's the application? Well, Jesus said, I'm only going to be physically present with you for a little more than seven months. Now, he didn't say seven months, a little while, but it was seven months, six months to the crucifixion, 40 days after that, he ascended into heaven. Here's the point. Salvation is a time-limited offer. It has an expiration date. Salvation has an expiration date. It is not open forever. When you croak and get room temperature, either you is or you ain't. It's way past choice time at that point in time. Jesus said what? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will dine with him. I was talking about fellowship. That's talking about intimacy and he with me. He's not going to knock forever. There was a movie, I can't remember, Tom Hanks, The Green Mile, maybe it was, and there was a phrase in there, they said, dead men walking. They were people who were on death row. Death was certain, and they were walking the prison grounds or the halls of the prison, etc. Those who have not yet made a choice to follow Christ are dead people walking. Spiritually dead people, and if they don't respond to the gospel, that will be made permanent for all eternity. None of us know how long we're going to live. No one knows if they're ever going to have another opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Christ says what? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to say yes to Jesus. And for us, those of us who know Jesus, I would say if God wants to do business with you, if the Holy Spirit is... You know that conviction that you need to 
deal with this. I need to deal with this in your life. When you, feel, you know you need to confess something, do it now. Don't wait. If God wants to do business with you, come to the altar and do business with him. Thy will be done, Lord. Whatever it is in my life you need to clean up, deal with, whatever it is, say yes to Jesus today. Now, the Jews, of course, missed the whole point. They're thinking literally, and they have missed the whole spiritual lesson. They think that it means he's physically going somewhere on earth that they would never choose to go. And they use this word, the dispersion. Is he going among the dispersion? Well, the dispersion really is where Jewish believers or Gentile converts to Judaism, they live outside the borders of Israel. So the dispersion was Jewish believers or Gentile converts, they're all Jews, religiously, and they don't live inside the borders of Israel. They could live in the Decapolis, across the, the Jordan River, etc. And it's interesting, because the Jewish leaders and many of the population rejected Jesus, the gospel message, in fact, was carried to the Gentiles. And you and I are recipients of that fact. Right? We have been blessed to be given the gospel, because we were not originals. The vine, as Paul says in Romans 9, 10, 11, the vine, the original vine, is the Jewish nation. We were grafted in, so we need to stand in a great deal of fear and, and humility. So Jesus is talking, and the more Jesus talks, the more confused the crowd comes. Verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Here's the principle. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. He is the source of God's supernatural life in us. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. He is the source of God's supernatural life in us. So we're talking about the feast. We're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. It's a harvest festival. It commemorated God's provision for Israel during their 40 years in the wilderness. So what they did is they constructed booths, if you will, made out of branches and leaves. Then they lived in them, kind of like camping out, you know, for seven days. It was a seven-day feast. And they lived outdoors in these booths to remind them of God's care for them in the wilderness. And he provided manna for them to eat and then water from the rock, etc. To celebrate and remember that, this feast had an elaborate uh, candle and water ceremony that took place each day of the seven-day feast. The temple was illuminated by these giant menorahs or candelabras, we would call them candlesticks, reminded Israel of God's pillar of fire that guided them through the wilderness as they journeyed. And each day a priest would take a golden pitcher, fill it with water from the pool of Siloam, and they would process into the temple, formal procession. Uh, and um, while they were doing that, the people would recite Isaiah 12:3 with joy. Uh, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And the priests would process and march around the altar with the water container and then pour it out at the base of the altar uh, as a, and more, in memory of how God brought water for the rock out of them. So this was remembering God's provision of water for them in the wilderness miraculously. And at the same time, a priest on the other side of the altar would pour out a pitcher of wine that was looked ahead to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Remember that Isaiah 44, God promises, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit 
on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. That's the seventh, seven days. The eighth day, the great day of the feast, there was this holy convocation, and the final pitcher of water was poured out. And this is the day, at the same time that this pitcher is being poured out, Jesus makes his great invitation, right? He says, in essence, I am the fulfillment of this great feast, right? Water is essential for physical life. Jesus is essential for spiritual life. So he gives this great invitation, whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink. Well, it made good sense because they drank physical water in the wilderness. That was miraculously supplied by water from the rock. Jesus is saying, I come from the same God who gave you the water in the wilderness for your physical thirst. I am come for your spiritual thirst. I give eternal life. God provided manna, from the, uh, obviously from heaven, and water from the rock. Jesus says, I am the bread of heaven. We discussed that a couple weeks ago. And the rock that provides water to the thirsty soul. I want you to notice something about Jesus' offer. Number one, it's open to all. It's open to all, right? Revelation, very, almost the last verse in the Bible, not quite, but it's close. He says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, it's free, come. John 3.16 says that whoever believes in him. This is open invitation for eternal life. There's a condition, though. You have to be thirsty or you won't drink. Isaiah 55, this is an offer of God, says, Ho, pay attention. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. It's free. Provision by God. Psalm 63, David is writing, about his thirst for God, and he says, Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You ever been that desperate for God? You ever been literally, spiritually dry? So dry, you don't even know what to pray for. Well, that's David. His soul is bone dry. And the culture he lives in is spiritually barren as, I guess, a windblown desert at high noon. I mean, it's just dusty. The problem for humans is not lack of water, spiritual water. God has an infinite supply of crystal clear water, right, for you to drink. The problem is most people refuse to recognize that they're thirsty. So they won't drink. You and I are at the age where we understand that not only us, but especially our maybe folks older than us, sometimes don't feel thirsty, right? You ever done any caregiving for someone who doesn't feel thirsty? And they don't drink enough water. If you become dehydrated, you will probably experience brain fog. And you may experience headaches as well. Well, many people are spiritually dehydrated, and they have big-time brain fog around Jesus. They don't think clearly about Jesus, and that's because they have a second problem. Everyone in this life is thirsty. Everyone. 
The problem is, where do they go to quench their thirst? Most people in this life try and quench their thirst with things other than Jesus. And it doesn't work. They remain thirsty, but they lie to themselves about how good the sand tastes that they're trying to drink, right? They remain deceived. Jeremiah 2.13, God is talking to the nation of Israel. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The whole Middle East is extremely dry, and people usually collected rainfall in underground cisterns, some just for your own house, and some community cisterns. Some cisterns are absolutely huge. Most of the time they're dug out of rock or earth, and many times they're lined with clay, right, to keep the water in so it doesn't seep away. Sometimes, though, the clay cracks and the water seeps out, and you get to your cistern, and there's nothing there except dry dust and dead animals because sometimes animals come to cisterns to drink water. So this is the water you're drinking, right? It's not exactly clean and pure. It's pretty, pretty bad. That's a picture of what it's like trying to fill your soul with the things of this life, right? Satan and his world system never stop trying to persuade us that you can satisfy your soul with things apart from Jesus. I mean, he'll lie to you, money, sex, power, fame, fortune, health, wealth, whatever, comfort, whatever this world offers, he will tell you it'll satisfy your soul, and it's a dry cistern with dead animal carcasses in it. It will never satisfy your soul. Everything in this life is going to dry up, die, and blow away, and go back to dust, right? Pascal once said that God created a, a God-shaped vacuum in every human heart that only a relationship with God will satisfy, and the rest of the time, you will be thirsty. And I know that because I look at people's behavior. When you look at your friends who reject Jesus Christ, they are worshiping at the altar of something. They are chasing something that they think is going to feed their soul. I don't, it could be athletics, it could be sex, it could be prestige, it could be a bigger house, it could be comfort, it could be sheer laziness. I don't want to do anything, whatever it happens to be. But they're all trying to fill that thirst with something. Once you figure that out, you've got an open door to minister to them because you know that they're thirsty. Now, as opposed to a leaky, dry cistern, Jesus says, I am a fountain. I am a spring of living, fresh, moving water like the spring of En Gedi. The spring of En Gedi is in southern Israel, very close to the Dead Sea. And if you haven't been there, it is dry, dry, dry. It is just rock. There is almost no plant life growing around the spring because there's no water and they're going to have rainfall to grow much of anything at that point. So this spring of water and waterfall is unique. What's utterly interesting is David spent a lot of time at En Gedi 3,000 years ago and it's still flowing fresh, pure water underground. I expect this spring probably came into being sometime around the time Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because Scripture tells us in Genesis that whole area down there by the Dead Sea was once rich and lush and lots of fresh water. Ever been working in your yard on a hot day and you're thirsty, you grab an ice cold water and you chug it down and you say, wow, that really hits the spot. 
right? That really satisfies your thirst. And Jesus said, I am offering myself as life-giving water for everyone with a thirsty soul. What is utterly amazing to me is that Jesus makes this gracious offer to the crowds that he has been repeatedly rejected by and is still getting rejected by. I'd have just nuked the whole group of them, just said, <laughs> be done. We have a Savior that is never done. He always, his love is amazing. Interesting that Jesus didn't say, you know, you look thirsty. I'm going to give you a shovel. You can dig, and if you keep digging long enough, you'll hit water. That's not what he said. He said, come to me. I am the source of living water. Come to me and drink. Drinking water is a word picture of believing in Jesus. Drinking is very personal, right? You take something outside yourself, and you put it inside yourself, and it becomes a part of you. When you place faith in Christ's payment for your sins, the Holy Spirit does what? Comes to live inside you. And the supernatural life of Christ grows inside you. And the result, Jesus said, it's not drops of water, it's not trickles of water, it's not streams of water, it's not creeks of water, it's rivers, plural rivers of water that are just flowing and insurmountable and immeasurable, abundant spiritual life. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have a little bit. Is that what he said? He said abundant. He said the water is going to be overflowing life and joy and peace and patience. And the source of all that is the Holy Spirit, who will come at Pentecost. Fifty days after Christ went into heaven, the Spirit comes after Jesus ascended to heaven. And from that moment on, at the moment of salvation, every single one who comes to Christ, God comes and lives inside of God the Holy Spirit. And he is the source of spiritual life. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again from above. That's the Holy Spirit who comes and brings eternal life into the heart of the believer. The theological term for that is regeneration, which literally means new birth. It refers to all of us becoming a new creature in Christ, passing from death into life. And the Holy Spirit is the very life of God inside the believer. So when we say we experience eternal life, even though we're here in the flesh and we're going to die, you have eternal life. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you right now. Paul writes, tells us how we experience this overflowing life. So if we've got the Holy Spirit, if we have God in us, how come we're so screwed up? even as Christians, right? How come we keep making these dumb things? Well, Paul tells us how to deal with that. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So if the flesh has got you by the throat, it's because you're not walking by the Spirit. Here's the picture. You and a loved one are walking down the road. And you're walking elbow to elbow. You ever walked elbow to elbow with somebody? Their elbow and your elbow? Your spouse, let's say, or a loved one? You're walking. When you're walking elbow to elbow with someone, here's what I know for sure. You're walking in the same direction, aren't you? Elbow to elbow. Two, you're walking at the same pace. As a matter of fact, you're probably matching them stride for stride for stride if you're walking elbow to elbow, that's close fellowship. That's the picture. Walk 
elbow to elbow with the Holy Spirit every day, and He will guide and direct you. And when you're elbow to elbow and the Holy Spirit says, we're turning left, guess what? If you stay elbow to elbow, you're turning left because He guides and directs us. And we learn to do this over time. You know, when you were a child, I assume most of you were a child, it was a long time ago, but you were a child, and you learned to walk. And the price tag of walking is you fall down or you sit down and you get up and you fall down and you get up again. And some of us are going to experience that on the other end of life here shortly, right? And we're going to get up again. And spiritually, we learn to walk by the Spirit in the same way. So you want to walk by the Spirit. Get up every morning and commit that day to the Lord. And commit yourself to the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. Ask Him, fill me with you. Cleanse me from everything that keeps me from you. I got lots of garbage in here. Wash me, Lord Jesus. Guide me, teach me, direct me. Show me what you want to do today, and I will surrender to you day by day, moment by moment, and he will fill you and lead you and guide you. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus promises these rivers of living water are going to overflow. This abundant surplus of life is not just for you. It's designed to be shared, right? There's plenty of living water. Share it with those that God puts in your life. Verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this is certainly the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Here's the principle. Your belief in Jesus must be based on the truth of who he is and what he did, not on human opinion. Your belief in Jesus must be based on the truth of who he is and what he did, not human opinion. So Paul, John tells us there are three different views of Christ here. Some thought that Jesus was a the prophet. Now, the prophet referred to the prophet that Moses told them through God's leading that God was going to raise up a prophet like Moses and to Israel would listen. And the common view of the day that the Messiah and the prophet Moses promised were two different people. Matter of fact, they were the same person. The prophet that Moses promised was the Messiah. Christ fulfilled both of those. But a prophet is only flesh and blood. No human prophet can promise you eternal life like Jesus did. Number two, some people thought that Jesus was a the Christ. So some crowd thought he was a the prophet. Some thought he was the Christ. Christ means anointed one. That's what Messiah means. And they accepted Jesus as God in human flesh who came to die for the sins of the world. That's an accurate view, completely biblical. And some rejected Jesus. And they rejected him because he was from Galilee. And they knew that Scripture said Messiah was born in Bethlehem. And everybody assumed that since Jesus was raised in Nazareth, therefore he was born in Nazareth. Well, Micah told us that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. I am absolutely stunned how many times in the Gospel of John people reject Jesus because they think he's born in Nazareth and no one cares enough to ask him, where were you born? Just amazing to me. I mean, that he claims to be Messiah. He claims to be God in the flesh. You think someone would check out his credentials and say, well, Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Let's find out where he was born. 
Of course, that would have blown the cover right then, right? It's amazing to me that people don't care enough to investigate who Jesus is. And that's some of us in this room. So this crowd is very divided. By the way, Christ said he's going to divide. Truth divides. Truth divides facts from fantasies. Truth divides reality from illusion. And Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. I came to divide families and people and nations because you cannot remain neutral about me. Either he's Lord or he's a lying lunatic, right? Jesus said, either you're with me or you're against me. You will make a decision and there is eternal consequences. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him? This is the most classic understatement in this lesson. The officers answered, quote, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in them, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man until it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Everyone went to his home. Here's the principle. Pride blinds people to the plain facts about the Scriptures, the plain facts about their sin, and the plain facts about the Savior. Pride blinds people to the plain facts about the Scriptures, about their sin, and about their Savior. Now, it's utterly interesting to me to see how God foiled the plot of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are going to come, and they're going to seize Jesus, they're going to take him out, and they're going to kill him. They will do that, but it's not God's time. That's going to be six months from now. So God's going to protect Jesus from that for another six months. So picture this. The officers are going to go seize Jesus, and they walk into the temple to arrest Jesus, and he is teaching the crowds. And as they move forward, they begin to listen to what Jesus is saying. And the divine power of his words captures their attention. So instead of arresting Jesus... His words have arrested them, right? And they come back empty-handed. And the Pharisees say, I can't even arrest him. And they say, quote, never has a man spoken as this man speaks. Well, duh, it's because he wasn't a man. He's God in the flesh. This is the same person that said, let there be light, and there was light. Have you ever wondered... Jesus, when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he's got 20, 25,000 people. And I'm intrigued if he had a voice that would carry to all 25,000. I mean, the voice of the Lord, you know, the tumult creates something from nothing. So these officers, they just heard God speak. I can guarantee you who else was listening. The entire angelic host in heaven was listening to every single word the Savior said. If you could pull back the curtain of the invisibles and look at angelic activity during the life of Christ on earth, it would blow your mind. And the Pharisees, they don't buy any of it. They accused them of believing in Jesus. They said, well, none of us, none of us rich intelligentsia, the religious intelligence, none of us have trusted Jesus. Those unwashed, ignorant 
illiterate, cursed masses, they follow him, right? And the Pharisees call him cursed because the masses don't keep all their rules. You know, they don't keep all the laws. They're politically incorrect. How's that? Religiously incorrect, right? And they call him cursed. It's interesting. It's more a comment about the religious leaders. If you're a religious leader, you're supposed to care for the flock, shepherd the flock, nurture the flock, and they call them cursed. Tells you what kind of religious leaders they were and why Jesus was so opposed to them. Nicodemus, he calls for a review of the judicial process. He says, you can't conclude that Jesus is a wrongdoer worthy of death until he gets a fair trial. And we've got to have evidentiary hearings. You've got to have a deposition and call witnesses, and we have to document your charges against him. Give him a chance to defend himself. And of course, his fellow Pharisees turn on him and accuse him of being as stupid as the average Galilean. You're just as crazy as the masses. And here's where they make a statement they know is not true. They say Christ can't be Messiah because there has never been a prophet from Galilee. And they knew that was a bald-faced lie. Jonah came from Galilee. Nahum came from Galilee. Hosea came from Galilee. Highly likely that both Elijah and Elisha came from Galilee. And their pride and prejudice against Jesus blinded them to the plain facts of Scripture. You know, you have friends that you can present all the evidence to, and God's going to let them make a decision, even if it's to reject him for all eternity. And the Pharisees were not making decisions based on evidence. They had data coming out their ears that he, in fact, fulfilled prophecy. They didn't want to accept it because they were proud and arrogant and they didn't want to submit to the Savior. They would rather be king in hell than a servant in heaven. Well, no one's king in hell. Because you're isolated and you're not with anybody. You're just isolated and alone. The truth about Jesus' identity is accessible. It's knowable. It's documentable. We see his signs. We see his fulfilled prophecy. We see 2,000 years of changed lives, millions and millions of people. What's fascinating to me is that Jesus is not only knowable, he wants to be known. He goes to great lengths to reveal himself so we can know him as Savior and Lord. There is no greater priority in life than knowing Jesus Christ by faith and making him known to others who need to know him. And Jesus invites us to what? Come and drink. Trust and fellowship with me every day. The rivers of God's supernatural life will flow in you and flow through you to those around you. And that is the ministry we've been called to. But we first ourselves need to be walking by the Spirit so we have life to share. Okay? Let's summarize and then we'll have Tom do prayer and praise. So point number one. Knowing Jesus is eternal life. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God. So relationship with Jesus Christ is eternal life. Therefore, make it your priority to know him more every day. You should know Jesus better today than you did yesterday. Don't neglect that priceless relationship. Number two, 
Since your eternal destiny depends on believing in Jesus, trust in Him before it's too late, because there is a day of opportunity, and there's a day when the door is closed. Number three, whoever believes in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. He is the source of God's supernatural life in us. We've talked about how to walk with the Spirit arm in arm so that His power and His life flows through us. Number four, your belief in Jesus must be based on the truth of His Truth of who he is and what he did, not in human opinion. That's why one of the things we do in this class only and always is go to the word itself. I'm not opposed to reading Christian authors, but there is no substitute for opening God's word and saying, Holy Spirit, I am brain dead this morning or this evening or whenever it is. I'm always brain dead spiritually. Lord, Open my eyes that I might see what you want me to learn today, right now. Open my eyes. And maybe it's just a word. Maybe it's just a verse. But ask the Lord to show you something for this day, whatever it is. And he will be faithful to show you that. Because that's what you're going to need for that day. And lastly, pride blinds people to the plain facts about the scriptures about their sin and about the Savior, and the only one who can open those eyes is the Holy Spirit. So before you share your faith, pray, pray, pray that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes and open their hearts that they would be willing to hear and respond. Thank you for your attention. John is so rich, so rich. It presents our Savior in ways that are absolutely transformational. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.